Welcome to the Kill the Lion podcast. It's me, Cody Clark. We got an awesome show for you today. We have Jordan Ross here, one half of Doomed Productions. They make awesome, truly independent films on YouTube, release them for free. Really good stuff. And if you like this conversation with him, check out the next episode with Ethan Hansen, the other half of Doomed Productions. We're putting both these episodes up at the same time, kind of a double episode, sister episode kind of thing. So if you like one, definitely check out the other. As always, if you like the show, if you like the studio Kill the Lion Films, support us at $2 per month at killthelionfilms.com. That's all it takes to keep us afloat, making podcasts, making feature-length films. It's what we do. It's what you love. Check us out and check out this episode. All right, Jordan, good to talk to you. Yeah, good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is our first actual conversation of hearing our voices and, and all that. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I hope it goes well. I think it will. So, Doomed Productions, okay? Right off the bat, Doomed Productions. Is that referring to anything specifically? Because I know that, you know, you had some trouble getting something together, that, uh, a film that you were trying to make, which led to you making Oh Brother... What can you tell me about Doomed Productions? Was that that life imitating art or was that in response to something that that happened? I'm curious. Yeah. So for the longest time, we were Caramel Shark Productions. Like that was what we started in high school. That was the name of our channel. And that's just what we went by. And this last year in fall, we sat down and we were looking at kind of making a logo and we're thinking, and we were kind of describing the logo, like what we wanted it to represent to our friend who was doing the logo. And then when we were discussing like what the logo should be, we kind of came to the realization that our name doesn't fit what we want our brand to be or like what our movies will be going forward. So then we were like, okay, let's change the name. And so then we just kind of took a look at a bunch of films we've done, the kind of stuff we're interested in. And... We had a movie called Doom on the Doorstep, which came out last fall, and we kind of liked that. We kind of liked the the funniness of a doomed production because it's kind of it kind of uh, hints at that horror kind of genre aspect of the movies we make. But it also is funny because if our movies suck, we can just be like, "Well, it was a doomed production." So that's kind of the way it came about. So, any significance to the Caramel Shark name? Uh, <laughs> so. This was again, this is in high school. This is so stupid. When Ethan, my my the other half of Doom Doom Productions, his old YouTube channel was Where Shark One. And when I was in school, uh I had a buddy who would call me Caramel Thunder. So we just combined those two and that's where we got that that name. So no Where Thunder. No, but that would have been good. That should have been our uh that should have been another channel we started. I like caramel shark. It, it, it's it's catchy. It's it sounds vaguely tasty. <laughs> it's a, it's a strange push together of two words. I like Doom Productions too as well. I, I I should say it's one of those names where you get a little jealous. Where you're like, oh man, that's perfect. You know, for for a a, a studio starting out putting out content, you kind of want to lean into whatever people's complaint is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know it. A- any hater you might have, you just want to be able to say, well, we're doomed productions. <laughs> yeah, just own it. You know, we were shocked because when we came up with the name, we were like, oh, I bet someone took this. And then we looked up and surprisingly, I mean, there were a couple small channels here and there that had doomed productions as a name, but it, there was no one big thing. Like when you search Doom productions, nothing like significant came up. So we're like, screw it. Let's let's steal it. Yeah, that's always a good sign. I'm definitely jealous, by the way, that you you used October uh-huh. because that's like it's like so perfect. It's like it it was like hiding in plain sight. I can't think of another movie called October. There there may very well be other movies called October, but everyone always focuses on Halloween. Mm-hmm. And October is a great name for a movie. That's one you guys worked on together. You didn't do that one alone, right? Yeah, that was the two of us. Yeah. So that that followed Oh Brother. What was it that you were trying to make like beforehand? Am I misremembering that, or were, was that like kind of like thwarted by COVID or something? Yeah, no, you're you're right. Um, we for the longest time, I mean, this is kind of getting back to like 
I guess this new movement of filmmaking that all of us are in, you know, we all have different names for it. I think Dan Lotz calls it folk filmmaking. But um, before I kind of discovered like you and Joel and Dan and, and everybody, we were kind of doing things tr- very traditionally. And that was kind of the way we were making movies. Then once COVID hit, um, we had, yeah, so we did have a movie planned. And once COVID hit, all the th- plans fell through. I mean, it was all storyboarded. It was scheduled. It was ready to go. And we just couldn't do it during the pandemic. And so after like, you know, in that weird like quarantine state where you're just bored, you're just watching random stuff, you're not really doing anything. At some point, I kind of discovered into this little circle of YouTube filmmakers and like low, super low budget filmmakers. So then then that's when we got the idea of like, hey, I'm stuck. in. So at the time, I was in a different city than Ethan. And I was like, okay, I'll make a movie in Eugene, Oregon. You'll make a movie in Portland, Oregon. And then... When I move back up, we'll make another movie together. And that was kind of the idea. So you're off making Oh Brother, he's making House at the exact same time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure he'll go into it, but his he's had a my making Oh Brother for me was a very kind of straightforward, simple process, fairly simple. But I know he had I mean, his project had a lot of ups and downs, and that's a whole interesting journey that mine just didn't have, but yeah, he's got some good uh, stories with making house. Oh, brother, seems to me like a, a very personal film. It feels like uh, the the family stuff comes from a real place. You know, I don't even know if you have a brother or not, but it just it feels grounded in something that would be relatable for a lot of people that are watching. I think it's a great film, and I think uh, especially because you did it yourself, it's just like man, it just feels like it can come from a a, a deeper place from you than it could if it were a collaboration or if a lot of other people were coming into the project and bringing their own stuff. It, it kind of reminded me of when I made my first film, Shredder. You know, I would never call it an autobiographical film, but I was definitely drawing from a lot of memories of like being a senior in high school that felt very real for me. How how much were you drawing from uh, your own life when, when you put together Oh Brother? I mean, I think... The one of the best screenings we had, or not even, it wasn't even a screening. I showed it to my family and I don't have a brother. I have two sisters and there were parts of it where they were like dying laughing where I knew that like it was funny to them because it's like an inside joke with our family, but it wasn't fun. I knew, I didn't think it'd be funny to anybody else or any particular part. Like the, uh, the bit where we're like arguing, I think for the first time and I storm into my room and then I come out and the other brothers sitting there with like all this different food and just eating like that is such a thing that one of my sister will do like she'll just like be at the counter you'll just find her eating just like that when she's angry and it's absolutely hilarious so we thought it was hysterical but that was one of those things where i was like gee i mean i don't think anyone else will find this really funny but like i'll just put it in just because but i mean it was kind of like that you know the write what you know kind of thing when I was making the script because it was just like, well, I'll just take stuff from my own siblings and my own family because that was, I mean, rather than make up some some artificial kind of fake thing, it just felt more natural to draw from, you know, real real family stuff. So do you have a lot of experience with clogged toilets? Is that what you're trying to say? (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it's a family curse, unfortunately. Yeah. So- one of the things that you guys focus on a lot is aspect ratio, and you make some really interesting choices with aspect ratio, uh, particularly in, in Oh Brother. You know, we're we're used to very specific aspect ratios in life. If people grew up watching, you know, four three television, that's you know what they think of as television, and 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 of course, a later generation sixteen nine is just television. What what are your thoughts on? completely kind of like alternative aspect ratios because I feel like you use some like weird ratios in Oh Brother that just aren't the usual ratio and how did you arrive at that? It's so weird. I think I think the first time, well, I mean, aspect ratio is one of those things that everybody's kind of aware of, or I mean subconsciously anyways, whether they are like actively aware of it or not. Um, but I think that I remember, I think it was in an experimental film class, and at the same time, I was working at this 
place in Portland called the Film Center where they teach classes and stuff like that. And I was working as a as a teacher's assistant and it was a cinematography class and the teacher I was with, he was saying, you know, technically an aspect ratio can be whatever you want. It's just the shape of your frame. And he gave an example of you could have a circle aspect ratio. And I was like, ooh, that's a good idea. So I took that and I put that in one of my experimental films. And then, I mean, ever since then, I've just been kind of experimenting with it. And I've discovered like there's other filmmakers out there who mess with it. And I mean, you can get like Chris Nolan is someone who like famously, like he'll switch between IMAX aspect ratio. And that's kind of like the popcorn Hollywood version of, I guess. Where And it's, it's funny because that's not even very extreme to me. But people will freak out over like, oh my gosh, why does in the when you're watching Batman, why does it switch from full screen to widescreen? And that's a whole lot. But then there's a guy named Noah Hawley who does the who did the TV show Legion and Fargo, and he did a movie called Lucy in the Sky, and he he uses aspect ratio a whole bunch, uh, and that's where I get a lot of my kind of inspiration and ideas from because. I mean, he's kind of just using it and it's very natural when he does it because he's just using it as a tool like like color, like lighting, like costumes, all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of it feels very natural and organic to just, you know, for any visual medium, you wouldn't. I mean, I think I've said this before, but, you know, paintings and comic books can be whatever shape they want. And for the longest time, movies have had just, you know. There's only a set like handful of aspect ratios that people use. And if you break outside of that, it's kind of a little weird. And I guess that makes sense if you're showing stuff in a theater. But if it's um, if it's at home, if it's on YouTube, if it's streaming, where you don't have to worry about theaters messing up your projection, you don't have to worry about the size at all. You can make it one by one. You can make it one by two. You can make it whatever weird size or shape you want because it's just going to be presenting your movie as it is. So I think that's one of those things where YouTube and the online kind of distribution really helps you out as a filmmaker is because you can experiment with aspect ratio in that way. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially um, the idea of projection and viewing YouTube as projection. I I have issues with YouTube as far as the compression that they use on some of the stuff you upload. But in general, you you are getting a better quote-unquote projection when you release on YouTube than you are in theaters. I, I've screened my movies in theaters, and it's pretty, it, it spans the gamut of like, you know, sometimes you get just really horrible projections, sometimes you get really good stuff, and you just can't really even judge based off like, oh, this is a crappy, like, dingy theater, oh, this is like a state-of-the-art theater. Like, it's just all over the place. Uh, projection in general has gotten really horrible uh, since the um, the advent of digital projection. It has so much potential, but it, it has a lot of unrealized potential. There was a lot of, it was more of an art form, I believe, when, when it was uh, film projection. How do you feel about uh, compression in, in general? As somebody who releases to YouTube, maybe Vimeo as well, I'm not sure, but what what are your thoughts on the way that you know you know you you control your image to a certain extent and then once you upload it suddenly it's in the hands of some algorithm trying to make sense of how to compress your images oh man it sucks <laughs> it's uh it's it's it sucks and there's not unfortunately there's not a lot that you can really do about it in terms of youtube like i suppose if you got everyone together and you just like send a mass email and spam to YouTube's inbox, be like, hey, change your compression settings and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that might make a difference. But that's one of those things where I kind of feel like, you know, having a little pixely image, that doesn't bother me so much. I think it's fine because, you know, I've watched movies on my phone. I've watched them on crappy TVs. I've watched them whatever. And, and, and a good movie will play on whatever you're looking at. As long as, you know, it's not like totally like, blurred out pixelated i mean i think i think how it is 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 okay they could do a lot better but you know we'll see how that progresses in the in the future and all that but i mean i it kind of feels like out of my hands you know what i mean like there's not a whole lot i can personally do about it other than just be aware of that when i'm making my movie like be aware of the colors and the color correction and making the visuals for youtube in mind so oh brother is in is in black and white October's in color. Um, what what 
made you choose black and white for Oh Brother? What made you choose uh, color for October? Um, what 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 went into that decision process for you? For Oh Brother, it was totally um, technical because I knew that I would be playing two characters in the same frame, and that's a pain in the butt to like when you have to split your image in half and match not only lighting but the colors as well. I knew if I just made it black and white, that was be one less thing for me to worry about. So that was just purely a technical thing. And then for October, um, I really wanted, I mean, that's a really kind of, it was more about an aesthetic experience. And so much of Halloween is to me is like those oranges, those yellows, those kind of, uh, those bright colors along, like alongside really kind of dark blacks. So for that, it was really Based on like, well, I know I just the presence of orange and yellow and all that kind of stuff. I really wanted that in the movie. And that's really where that came from October. So with Oh Brother, I, I that was my my guess was that it was it was technically based as far as it being so much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did my first film Shredder, it was it was definitely a choice of I just did not like the color look of the video grain that I was getting because I wanted to do everything natural light just whatever was available and you know when i was using very high isos i just did not like the look of it in color whereas when i was looking at it in black and white it just looked like grainy 16 millimeter to me it had a similar vibe to that and i i I feel like sometimes people you know just watch movies maybe don't make movies they assume that sometimes there's these grand artistic uh choices but a lot of it does come down to technical aspects and and making sure that the film is able to work on some level that people can get down with when when you made oh brother you know a lot of the music choices were pretty interesting i i can you expound upon that because that was pretty interesting yeah so there's one song that well actually there's two songs i think (laughs) it's been a while since i've seen it the songs i remember are from cambodia and that's where my family's from. And if anyone knows about like Cambodia, you know that there was a huge genocide there where essentially all of the musicians, all the artists, all the filmmakers, they were just wiped out completely. So prior to that genocide, there wasn't a lot, as, as far as I'm aware, copyright law was next to none. And after the genocide, it's pretty much non-existent. So it's work where technically you could use it in an ad. And I think you'd probably be fine. Because no one owns the rights because some of the songs, they can't even identify who's on it or who recorded it. Now, there have been cases of um, like the the guy specifically used Sin Sissamouth. He, um, his family, I think they were awarded the rights to, I think, 68 of his songs. But he honestly recorded into the thousands. Like he recorded more songs than the Beatles in his lifetime. So it's only a small percentage and that's a very rare thing. Most most artists in Cambodia, at least from back then, the in the golden rock and age, rock and roll age, you know, those rights are really up in the air. And you know, if I w- if I was getting paid to make a movie, or if I was making money off of the movie, something does feel a little, I guess, gross about taking music from a horrible situation and just using it just because of copyright. But it's music that I genuinely enjoy and I love and I want to share with the world because. I think more people should be exposed to it. And I wasn't getting paid for the movie. And I was like, you know what? It's I want to share this. This is good music. This is good art that the world just kind of isn't that aware of. So I put it in the movie because I just wanted to honestly just share that part of my culture and where I, my heritage and all that stuff. That's really where it came from. But it is but it it just happened to work out that, you know, you don't really need the the rights to use it pretty much. You don't need licensing rights. Yeah, it was all news to me. I did not know uh, that aspect of, um, you know, the ownership and and it being hard to track down. And I really liked the music in the film. I thought it, it worked. And I also think, you know, as somebody who releases to YouTube, uh, what are your thoughts on using copyrighted music? Because I know, you know, some of the guys we know, they, they'll just put whatever song they want in there because YouTube is just going to, you know, current incarnation of YouTube is totally fine with it and isn't going to take your your movie down like they would back in the day. Do you feel inclined to use music that you don't have the rights to because you're releasing it on YouTube? Do you do you try and protect your films for the future? That's that's kind of my approach is like I I care about physical releases and all that stuff. 
So I try and avoid that kind of thing as much as possible. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Like, it's a funny time to ask it because I'm with you generally is I like to use stuff that I know I won't get in trouble if I use. I liked it to be like either all mine or stuff that I know I can legally put in the movie and sell and make a profit of. Also, because I just like I like composing and, and like making my own stuff. So I try to do that when I can. And it just kind of makes the film feel more, I mean, I guess it gives you more ownership over the movie in a weird way. Try not to sound like egotistical or anything, but like, this is all mine kind of thing. But like, it is nice to be like, everything in this movie, like we made and we created, and we could sell it if we wanted to, or we could screen it at a festival if we wanted to. There's something nice in that. But I know that there's like, specifically on YouTube, like it, because it doesn't, this current version of YouTube, it doesn't matter if you put like a Lady Gaga song or whatever in your, in your movie. So the feature we're ramping up to do, I know there's going to be at least one song that, that is, um, we don't own it. It's like a, like a popular song from a band and everything. And so we're going to put that in, but because we know like, Hey, you know, let's just, you know, why not? Because this song speaks to this thing. We think it's right for the project. So we'll just do it this once. I mean, again, it's something I try not to do very often. And I haven't really done in years and years and years since high school. But it's one of those nice things about YouTube where, you know, I think way back when I first started out, YouTube would remove your your movie if or remove the sound if you use copyright stuff. But now that they just kind of, they have the owners of the song monetize it or whatever, put ads or whatever, like it's kind of a nice workaround in a way for if, if you really want to use music that you don't own. Yeah, it's a lot more fair these days. I, you know, I've been doing YouTube stuff since like around 2009. I think I, I got on there and then I, I left for a while because I got sick of um, just the culture on there, just the vibes of people. And also the fact that like, you know, I do some short, some like comedy thing and like I would use some track that like I thought was public domain because sometimes you go on those websites where it like lists like, oh, here are the songs that are free to use. And then you find out that the information isn't like entirely accurate or you get false claims on stuff that was it was just a really annoying time period. But I feel like now like YouTube is a little bit of a better place. It seems like particularly Joel Haver's success, like Joel, as you know, is the sweetest guy in the world. And, you know, he he's able to find the success where like. I feel like a couple years ago, the thing to, to be on YouTube was to be very cynical and very um, almost troll-esque in your content. And then you would have like millions of, of, of hits or whatever. And that's that's what pushed me away from YouTube. But now, like nowadays, like I'm, I'm totally content throwing my movies up on YouTube. I feel like it's just a different, uh, different vibe. But what, what do you think about where YouTube is right now as far as just its energy? I love it. I think it's great. I think, um, I mean, I think you're right. I think there is a real cynic. There was a real cynical side of YouTube and what was getting popular. I mean, it felt like, I mean, I remember way back in the day where it was like before all the advertisements and all the corporations got into YouTube, like it felt like a real kind of, it was something special. And then it became very like branded and, 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 you know, it felt, it felt not that different than television, honestly. So to see someone like Joel make it big, that gives me hope in the, in like where YouTube is going. And I think, you know, the pandemic really kind of helped out, like, I think me personally, but maybe other people like, oh, YouTube can be for long form content. Because before that, I mean, in my head, people only watch YouTube videos that are, you know, five to 10 minutes or so. I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I think Joel's, Joel's feature films, um, like any, all of the feature films that I've been seeing on there, it's like, wow, I never would have thought that I would be going YouTube to watch more movies than I would be going to Netflix or something like that. Because it's just more interesting than what's on those, a lot of those streaming services, which is kind of cool that you get, it's this direct link right to the filmmakers who are making interesting work, all long form content, and it's finding its audience on YouTube. And I think that's, I think that's awesome. Yeah. Since I've put like about half my filmography up on YouTube, you know, it's it's reaching people that just would never have watched it if it were on Amazon. They just either they just don't 
have Prime or you know whatever reason it's it's reaching new people and the response has been great i'm i'm happy with that and i'm happy that you know new people get to see my work so it's an exciting time and i'm kind of glad to be back on youtube now which is something i wouldn't have thought i would be back on a couple of years ago i thought it was just kind of like it felt like going back to like your old middle school or high school or something like I felt like, oh, I, I've done that YouTube thing. I don't need to be back there. Like, I'm, I'm past that. But like, no, it's, it's, it's good again. It's, it, it's interesting again for sure. Yeah. When, when are you going to put Ramakin on there, or are you? Because that's my absolute favorite of yours. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm doing an alternate cut of uh, Ramakin, which is I'm, I'm resurrecting some of the uh, original audio. Um, that was recorded on set. So one of the common complaints about that movie is some people like the dub, some people absolutely can't stand the dub. I did the dub for stylistic, weird me reasons, but it, it's such a good movie that I want like people that would like it otherwise to have a version that they can like stomach for whatever, you know, because some people like, they just see the dub and they just can't get into it. Fine, whatever. I like weird Italian movies with dubs. I like all sorts of, you know, weird content with dubs, but I just, I was like, you know, if I'm going to put it on YouTube, why don't I just stick up the dub version and the, you know, resurrected audio version and then anybody can, you know, watch it and be happy with it. And I'm sure they'll complain about something else at that point. You know, (laughs) (laughs) certain people you cannot, I'm not trying to please anybody that want to hate me regardless, but I do want to just like create something a little bit different with it for that reason. Um, so that, that'll go up soon. The only ones I'm not going to put up on YouTube are ones with like, you know, explicit nudity or anything, just because, you know, I'm not, I don't think YouTube is even entirely sure what their specific rules are about that. But I also feel like that kind of stuff should be behind some sort of paywall so that people take it seriously, you know, so I don't get like the people that like, will comment just like the the time code of the nudity and that'll get like a thousand like you know thumbs up and just be stuck at the top there like (laughs) i don't want to have to deal with that stupid shit so that's that's the line i'm drawing but anything without that kind of stuff i'm just going to put up there and have some new life uh breathed into it so you know you mentioned you liked ramekin was that a little bit of an influence on october because i feel like that's that has that innocent quality to it as well that i was trying to tap into i was trying to resurrect horror from non-innocence and uh because i i grew up on horror that like kids could watch and and could sit down with and not have to close their eyes every couple minutes you know i'll watch the extreme horror stuff too some of that stuff is great but you know, I hate that horror has become associated with like who can scare you the most, who can gross you out the most, who can jump scare you the most. That should never be what horror only is. And and I like that you made a a more innocent kind of goosebumpsy kind of horror. So what was when you saw Ramekin did that kind of inspire that? I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I'm just curious the uh, the genesis of uh, October. I think with that, I mean, it was, I think it was a subconscious influence because I wasn't thinking about it. And then when we were, I think it, it was either editing or doing shooting, one of those two, we did them back to back pretty much. It was all the pumpkin stuff. And I was like, you know what? This kind of reminds me of Ramekin a little bit. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm totally sure that was like a subconscious thing of that like innocent PG type horror movie. But that was kind of the idea. I mean, the whole genesis behind October was like, when you think about what you watch during October or like Halloween season, I mean, there's only like a cut handful of great Halloween movies, right? There's like Halloween, there's like Trick or Treat, there's a couple of Disney Channel movies, right? But there's not a lot of like, it's mostly horror movies. And what does The Shining have to do with Halloween? Absolutely nothing. What does Nightmare on Elm Street have to do with Halloween? Nothing. It's this weird balance of like whenever I'm trying to curate like a playlist of what to watch on Halloween there's so few movies that check all the boxes of like one being set around or on Halloween two kind of having Halloween vibes, because that's a thing. There's movies that are set on Halloween, but that don't feel Halloweeny at all. And then there's other movies that are just like have nothing to do with Halloween, but kind of feel Halloweeny. And so October is going to be the first of, of 31 planned films where it's like each one is like 
about Halloween in some shape or form, and it feels Halloweeny. That's kind of the idea behind the the project. So, thirty one films. Do you have a timeline for this? Do you have any of them figured out? Is this is this a life's work? Is this something you're going to bang out over the weekend? What what's uh, thirty one films? Are are they all feature length? Are they some of them shorts? I, I'm very intrigued. Yeah, um, it's probably going to be a long time. I right now, I think at the very slowest, it would be one feature film for the next 30 years. Well, I yeah, if you take out October, if you don't count like that year, that's one out of 31. So for the next, you know, gee, I can't do math. 2051, one movie a year until then, that's Halloweeny. Yeah. That's awesome. I I love the commitment to that because then it becomes kind of like an advent calendar where like you can watch one every day of October and then end up on, you know, whatever your favorite one is or, or whatever. That's a, that's a really interesting uh, concept because we make the kind of movies that we make and we have the freedom involved. You know, I, I dream of like, Oh, making a movie in every single state of the U S or, you know, making a movie every month of a, a particular year or, you know, coming up with a movie in at like 6 a.m. And by the time it's like, you know, 6 a.m. the next day, having like a finished movie, that kind of thing. It's a really it's a really cool aspect of of the kind of truly independent stuff that we do. What do you think you gain from like because people always think of like, oh, I can't make like the next, you know, huge blockbuster. But what kind of stuff do you think is 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 great about the freedom that that you have to make uh, your smaller films? Yeah, I think, I mean, just the more that you think about it, and this is what me and Ethan, we've been, we felt this all throughout high or uh, film school, and we kind of felt this after film school, and just being a part of this kind of movement has really helped us cement this idea. But like, I don't want to be on a set necessarily where it's a set job and there's the grips and there's the DP and there's the first AD and then, you know, there's all those separated jobs to me, you know, when you are starting out, at least that's so much work. Like it, that creates so much unnecessary work when you're, when it's just like a group of five friends and you're trying to replicate a big Hollywood set, like that's completely redundant. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I did a film in film school where I or sh- I shot it with for like a friend and I was just acting in it but it was like a two page scene or maybe it was just one page and it was a very simple kind of comedic thing and I'm not even joking I think it took like 8 hours to shoot and after that I was like jeez like if that was me and Ethan we could have shot that in like an hour 30 minutes even so I think I mean, there's so many specifics and I heard, I think you and Dan or it might've been you and Joel in your other podcast, you guys kind of went over it of just like the ridiculousness of like those sets. And I mean, those sets are great if you're into like the industry of filmmaking, but if you're kind of just, if you just want to make art with your friends and if you just want to create, it gives you a lot more freedom. And I think just so I'm not repeating anything you, you guys all said, but like another thing to think about with when it comes to sets and roles and all that kind of stuff and the freedom you have is like money, right? So if you have money to make a movie, you would think that having more money is good, right? Well, it's tricky because say you want to hire an actor or an actress or whoever to play a role, are they union or are they non-union? If they are union, you have to pay them certain things. Or if you're running a location, you have to think about like insurance and paying that there's just all these kind of complications and red tape that come up with money, which are good for big, huge productions, but are just, they exist to like, you will not thrive in them as a independent production or a small production. That's where a lot of, that's why money gets eaten up really quickly on small, on small projects because they're trying to emulate big movies with getting permits and paying everybody at set rates and all that kind of stuff, which again, it, it's good on specific projects, but when you're a small independent kind of thing, it it, it really slows you down and it's going to eat all your money and you're just going to spend the whole time trying to navigate red tape and like legal paperwork, which let's be honest, no one gets into films to do that. You just want to make movie. So just grab a camera with your friends and you can do whatever you want. We filmed, I don't recommend this at all. Don't do this. But there were train tracks near our house, right? Where we were filming and so we we filmed there multiple times and eventually we got stopped by a cop who was like, hey, you can't be there. And we're like, oops, sorry, we didn't know that. And we, you know, we left. 
But that's one of those things where if we had wanted to shoot on those train tracks, it would have been a pain. We, we couldn't. It just, we flat out, we would not have been able to do that if we were working with money and a budget and kind of all that stuff. But if you're just a small crew of people, go out and you can shoot wherever you want, pretty much. Just, you know, I don't recommend train tracks. That's really stupid You because, you know, you might get killed or something. But, you know, you have so much more freedom as someone with no money than you do with lots of money. And I don't think that's something that people realize until, you know, you get further into the into your filmmaking career. Yeah, it's it's the classic thing of mo money, mo problems. You know, <laughs> it's it's you know, you can have all the money in the world, but it's always going to be somebody else's money. You know, it, if, if somebody's giving you that much money to make a film, they're going to want it done the quote unquote proper way. And that's going to entail a lot of stuff that really gets into in the way of the uh, creative process. So when you're coming up with one of your smaller films, are you somebody who writes a lot? Are you somebody who improvises a lot? I know there's a lot more freedom. I know Joel Haver, you know, famous for, he doesn't write a thing. He just wants to get out there and start improvising. I'm more a writer type. I like to, you know, write out the screenplay, do a couple drafts, make it very honed. What What's your, your process right as far as uh, writing? Uh, I, I'm a writer too. So I like to, now this hasn't been the case with Oh Brother or October necessarily, but in my ideal world, I like to write a couple drafts, perfect the script as much as I can. And then I, then um, I storyboard. And I did do this with October where essentially I have a journal and I board each shot and each cut. So it's not simply as like, you know, writing down, oh, we'll get a shot, a reverse shot and a master. No, I like for each line of dialogue that's spoken or each moment, I board out what it's going to look like. And that makes, and I do that for two reasons. One, I'm a visual person. It's just easier for me to visualize the movie that way when I see where each cut will be and what each shot will be. But also it makes editing go a whole lot smoother when I just have the blueprint right there. So it's kind of like a, a comic book of the movie, essentially, before before the movie. So that's kind of how I do it. So it's a lot more um, planned out and organized. But that's not to say that we don't improvise. Because I think for, for at least us, or for me, when when I ha- when it's everything is so detailed and planned out, then I feel like I can, okay, now I can kind of throw lines out here and there because I know the story inside and out. Yeah, that's similar for me. Mo- most of my improvising, it'll happen in rehearsal and then I'll, you know, take a couple notes of like, oh man, that would be really good to stick in. Or, you know, maybe it's not, the scene is like ABC and maybe it should be BAC as far as like the beats that we're hitting just based off rehearsal or whatever. As far I as got, your shoots, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask you before, real quick, how much of Mute Date was improvised? Because for a lot of, they're not speaking for like hardly any of that. So they could be doing whatever and the narration could be whatever it wants. So how much of that was scripted and how much of that was improvised? It was pretty much 100% scripted. And I was basically standing behind the camera yelling the entire script <laughs> at, at the actors and they were just, you know, reacting based off. I mean, they knew they knew the dialogue ahead of time. They kind of had it like mostly memorized, but I was just yelling it at them. And <laughs> like, you know, a couple seconds of there would be like, you know, a split second difference between their reaction and what I was yelling. But in editing, you know, I could plug in the voiceover wherever I wanted and it would just line up perfectly with what they were doing. That's awesome. Yeah, that was I mean, it was that was like total like that whole movie just came about because of technical limitations like i was i was using sci-fi to cover up for the fact that i had no viable way to record good audio mm-hmm. as far as like a movie that was set on a first date like i my my initial idea you know was something very bare bones it was just my friend anthony who i just wanted to put as a lead in a movie I just wanted to to put him on like a first date and just do like one of those movies where like, you know, two people are just going on a first date in New York City. And it was more it was definitely a more urban idea. It was it was less like, you know, the greenery and whatnot. It, the initial idea was more like cars and things whizzing by and all that. And there was just no way I was going to get really good audio that way. It would just be so difficult that it would become most of my focus, whereas I wanted to be focusing on the visuals. So I was like, well, you know, I just did dubbing for 
for Ramekin, I was like, well, I could do dubbing again. And wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to line it up with the, the lips because then I, there's so much freedom there. So then it was just, all right, what's a science fiction version of that? You know, what, what could I do there? And then Mute Date essentially wrote itself once I had that prompt, once I had that idea. And it, it became this thing where, yeah, you could plug in whatever you want into that movie. I'm sure I could release a version where people could stick in their own voices and, and do a completely different movie. And it, it's just a, it was a great little hack, you know, like, I feel like, you know, the kind of movies we're making, we're always looking for what we can get away with and what we can, um, you know, do to make our limitations just completely invisible or play into them in, in, in some capacity. Yeah. Well, Mute Date, that's such a great example of like a clever sci-fi premise that Hollywood would spend billions of dollars trying to like get that made. And like, it would have been so like cluttered and unnecessary, but it's like, you don't need all that. You just camera two people and they're just talking and it's all dubbed. And like, that's a brilliant sci-fi concept right there. That's such like, to me, that's like one of those, like, oh my gosh, why didn't anyone think of this before? That's such a smart way to like fun. Like it's like a mix of like before the before sunset trilogy with like a small sci-fi kind of twist. Yeah, that's uh I mean my favorite sci-fi is the sci-fi that happens in your head, you know, the the sci-fi that you envision. I would rather not that I really do that often, but I'd rather sit down with a sci-fi book and 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 see what kind of images come into my head rather than sit in front of a a sci-fi movie. And as I say that, I realize that like I very rarely read sci-fi novels. I mostly watch sci-fi movies, but in my perfect <laughs> In my perfect like version of that, it's something like Mute Date, and that's why I, I'm I'm less satisfied by science fiction movies as I as I could be because I want I want people talking about stuff. Like there was that I remember there was that movie, um, the man who fell to Earth or man who came to mm -hmm. Earth. Yeah, with Keanu I, it, Reeves, right? No, it was um oh man, it was it, it was a bunch of no name like you know Hollywood, but not like well known actors. And it was, um, it was that there was this guy that was like immortal, and he was sitting down with all his friends uh, at like a cabin and explaining to them like, "Oh, I'm immortal. Here's here's everything that's been going on with me in my life." And it's just a movie where people are talking. It never cuts away to like him as a caveman or him as whatever. It's all just happening in your head as you're watching the movie. It's basically a filmed play. I didn't particularly care for the movie. I thought the acting was horrible. I thought the the production quality was just like so abysmal. But I love the fact of a sci-fi movie where it's just people talking and it happening in your head. And that's something I definitely took with me and probably fueled Mute Date in some capacity of like, all right, well, what what's more interesting than like an interesting conversation and then getting to carry that with you for the rest of your life and kind of envision some world because of that yeah yeah no it's and that's another again another thing where it's like you would think as a small independent production like you couldn't you can't touch genre i mean most people i went to film school with a lot of them were just like oh i'm just gonna do dramas and they're all like talking head stuff and that's great but it's fun to have like genre films and there's like smart clever ways you can do it without a budget yeah there's room for genre films that are you know basically you know, a talking head movie. It's just that the talking is very visually persuasive and puts images in your head and yeah. makes you think of concepts. It, it, you could definitely go so many places if you start breaking out into that kind of thing. And I, I hope that like, you know, I know that a lot of people listen to the show are filmmakers themselves or want to start making films or are interested in this, this kind of movement that's going on. I hope that, you know, one of the things they take away from you know, this episode and in general is that, you know, you, your limitations, you might think it's like, oh, the camera you have or, oh, the, the boom you have or whatever. Your limitations are mostly just yourself and, and what you envision for you, what you are capable of doing or what the story is capable of being. You, the most limitations you'll ever have in life are the ones that you place on yourself that have nothing to do with money, technical aspects, whatever. It's, you know, how much are you going to box in your creativity and how much are you going to let yourself come up with these ideas that you would never come up with in a million years if you had millions of dollars to work with? Like you, 
nobody is going to sit down and come up with mute date in the same way or ramekin or october or oh brother like you know somebody watching oh brother can be like oh that's that's kind of like the adaptation thing where like you know there's two nicholas cages or whatever but adaptation is not this personal piece that like feels very familiar even if you haven't dealt with those specific family things like that it doesn't have that grounding and it also doesn't have that homegrown quality of like one person is doing all of this you know and that's like magic on a level that hollywood can't even touch man like uh, they can't do what we do even if they wanted to it would just be so much in the way it's like they can only do you know siegfried and roy stage magic they can't do like the David Blaine kind of like street magic that happens like a couple feet from your face and it's like on a busy street corner and all that. They can't do that. And that's the more compelling stuff and will always be the more compelling stuff, I feel. Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll again, they'll spend millions of dollars trying to replicate reality, but it's like they never will be able to succeed in that. It's like, I feel like Hollywood is best when it's like big popcorn budget nonsense and i love that stuff i love all movies I, and i love like going to the theater and like watching cgi you know art or cgi like monsters and everything like that i love that stuff but when hollywood tries to do like more personal stuff like that sometimes it's okay sometimes it's not and i think that's a, a sweet spot for a lot of uh young no budget independent artists where you can't you can do something hollywood can't there's a lot of stuff you can do that Hollywood just cannot do. And once you discover that and you discover your voice, you're going to, you know, you're going to hit the ground running pretty much. Yeah, I loved uh, Sonic the Hedgehog from last year. That was like my favorite movie of last year. And I I love the, you know, popcorn stuff as well. It's just that like, you know, it has to be that. It has to it will always be stuck as as that. I can't make a Sonic movie, but they can't do what I do, so we're even, you know? And <laughs> yeah. I would always rather be doing what I'm doing, so I'm happy, you know? I, I don't have to work with, you know, all the great actors that I would necessarily want to work with. You know, I, I, I'm fine with being just fans of Daniel Day-Lewis or, you know, whoever else. I don't necessarily need to work with these people. For me, the stars are like the people that are in my movies, you know? Those <laughs> those <laughs> are movie stars for me. Like, I, I I'm such big fans of anyone I cast I'm I'm casting them because I think they're the best person possible for this role this film whatever so they're my Daniel Day-Lewis like Anthony Kapfer in Mute Date that's that's because it's exactly what I want it's it's a better performance than any Hollywood actor could ever give me because they they'll never be able to be you know my friend Anthony who I like the vibe of and I enjoy but the idea of like Casting people to play people that you know is just like so stupid and would never occur to us um, because we can just cast the people we know. But when when you're trying to market a movie, suddenly Liam Neeson's your dad or whatever. And it's just like, well, why would Liam Neeson ever be my dad? Why can't my dad just play my dad or whatever? Yeah. You know, it, it's so it's so silly. No, I believe anyone can act i think anyone could be a good actor they just oh, gotta yeah. be comfortable and you gotta have a you have to be a good director have a good director behind them you know you don't need to cast you know meryl streep or whoever like like you said just cast your dad to play your dad and that'll work out just great yeah and you you're you're a very good actor i should say too you're you're not just a good filmmaker oh brother is is mostly you know it, it's it's writing on the back of the acting you know if you if you drop the ball there suddenly that movie's going to become very unwatchable you know <laughs> like it, it's resting on the fact that you believe one brother as one brother and the other brother as another brother like if we're watching a scene and we're like i'm not sure what i'm looking at is it this brother or is it the other brother then suddenly it, the whole film falls apart and i like that aspect of the kind of th stuff we do we're like it has to succeed in these very specific areas or if it, or it all falls apart. And so like, you know, it, it, it's kind of like that theater type thing where like, you know, if you, if a play sucks, then you realize that you're sitting on an uncomfortable chair in a dark room and you're looking at, you know, people lit by like lights and suddenly you're out of it. And it's like, Oh man, the, I, I can't get back into this. We're, we're kind of doing that same thing. We're like, 
if we drop the ball as far as the acting or the editing or whatever, it's just going to show more because we don't have all these stupid bells and whistles that Hollywood pays millions of dollars to be able to have like, yeah. you know, big scores or, or, or amazing, like, you know, tracking shots and all these like crazy things and like huge set pieces or whatever. Like we're, we're, we're the theater guys. And you know what? Historically actors like that stuff more anyway, you know, all the big actors, they want to take a couple years off and do theater anyway, because it's, it's real. It's, it's something tangible where they, they feel like they're actually being appreciated for what they can actually do. You know, any big actor always has that period where they take a couple years off and do do little plays or whatever. You can be the biggest actor in the world. Nobody can ever give you that real connection to a source material and to an audience like theater can. And I do think that, you know, more and more we're going to see bigger actors as they find out that you and I exist and Joel exists and Dan exists and the list goes on. As they, as they find out that people like us exist, we're going to be the new taking a couple years off to do theater. You know, there's going to be bigger actors that are like, you know, this union hasn't done much for me or anybody anyway. I'll go non-union and do this project because it's, this is the cool stuff that's happening right now as far as writing and filmmaking in general. That's, that's the vibe that I get. Yeah. You know, I, and I think it's, it's one of those weird things that I didn't even notice until just now. It's like, Something that all of us have in common in this kind of movement, whatever you want to call it, is we're all actors for the most part, I think. Yeah. Because you're you're in Shredder, you're in um, Strummer, Dan's in his movies, Joel's in all his stuff. And part of that comes from necessity, but another part of it is like, I don't know, it teaches you to be a better director. And it also like, it's it's just fun to act. It's fun to mess around with your friends and be on camera. And it, and it will make you a better storyteller if you're aware of the, all that aspect, even if, you know, because I'm sure there've been projects where one of us have been like, oh man, I wish I didn't have to act in this, but I don't have anyone else. So I have to do it, but you do it and it's actually pretty fun. And it's, you know, it'll make you a better creator, a better director. And it, I think that's, I think that's a really interesting part of, of this kind of movement where it's like, oh yeah, you can totally feel the presence of the director in everything. Because the director is in a lot of it, and they they have a, such a hand in the music and the editing and all that, they're touching every part of this movie. And I think that's just another another way that that we can all be proud that we have ownership over our films. Like it's all us. This all comes from the heart. This all comes from th- these movies are so personal, and they come from a deep place. And again, that's something that's very hard to replicate in Hollywood. You they keep, very off like they don't always do that more more uh more often they don't so it's really impressive that and that when a film in hollywood can be made that feels really personal but that's just something we can just naturally do that we don't have to have all the money to do it because we can just that's just what makes us unique i think that's awesome yeah it also acting you know as a director it allows you that to direct through the performance that you're giving so if you're acting opposite somebody and you want to steer the uh, the conversation in the area that the scene needs by how you deliver your lines. You can steer it back to whatever you're trying to do, which is it, it's a superpower. It's like if if you're just watching two actors and you're directing them, you got to wait till the scene is over. You know, if you're if you're in the scene, you can save pretty much anything just by like matching what the person is giving or bringing them back to a certain place that you want it or whatever. It's it's this like. It's it's a director's dream almost to just be in the scene and be able to uh, control it in that aspect. Yeah, I can I, I can just picture like um like if if Daniel Day Lewis directed a movie or Leonardo DiCaprio, they're just they're trying to direct and they were like, you know what, just do it like this, and then then they perform the scene and it's amazing. It's like, well, then why don't you just act in it if you <laughs> like, you know? Exactly, exactly. All right, so we're going to close it out here with a, a segment. If you've heard the show, you know it's called Stupid Questions. It's just how we go out and how we leave the show. It's a little bit of a palate cleanser. It just, uh, you know, is our thing that we do. And, of course, you know, we don't want to keep uh, your boy waiting. We got to have him on the show. We're doing these episodes back-to-back, people. If you're listening back-to-back, you know, we're splitting them up, but I'm recording them straight back-to-back. I know Ethan is waiting in the wings, so we'll do a little couple stupid questions, and uh, then we will get out of here. Are you ready for stupid questions? 
Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right. First stupid question. What's the deal with like pie? I feel like pie is in like your movies. You, it's always like somebody's <laughs> eating pie or whatever. What What's the deal with the pie? What What does it represent? Why is it there? Do you love pie? Do you hate cake? Tell me about it. I never noticed that. You never oh notice that because no. I'm telling you, America is <laughs> noticing it. Okay, it's not just um, me. We we all want to know what the deal is with with all the pie in your movies. In Oh Brother, it was like I need a good dessert that's easy that I can just buy from the store, and that's why it's in there. In October, I mean, pumpkin pie and Halloween go hand in hand. So I feel like if you make a movie about Halloween and there's no pumpkin pie, I think there's a failure on your part to an extent. So is this something you're going to keep going now that I've called attention to it? Are you going to feel like a failure if you don't find some way to work pie into everything that you do from now on? Or (laughs) are you just going to get real self-conscious and be like, oh man, I better not write about pie ever again. I'm going to try to put a pie in everything I do now, now that you've mentioned that. (laughs) Please do. Now this is a historic episode. Now this is, you know, one for the history books because people can pinpoint the, the exact moment you realized your deep connection to pie that you did not realized before and then you just stuck it into everything all your 31 movies all your every movie you make from now on it's just all about pie yeah you know (laughs) that's great that's great all right one more stupid question okay your name is jordan right yes that that's one of those like cool names that like if you're growing up in like the 90s like that's one of those names that you wish you you had what was it like having a cool name growing up you know you want to know where it comes from Sure. You know uh, the New Kids on the Block, the boy band? Yes, of course. My mom is a huge fan of the New Kids on the Block. This is the best possible answer you could have given. This is an amazing answer. So Jordan Knight is like, that was like her guy in New Kids. So that's why I'm Jordan. That is awesome. You know, I'm I'm a little bit older than you. I'm just going to tell you, growing up in the 90s, there was no cooler name than like Jordan that was like you are officially like the leader of like the the friend group or you're the cool kid <laughs> that everybody looks up to. There were certain names like that. Tommy had that kind of thing too because of the Green Ranger from uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Oh, Tommy yeah. had that power to it, but Jordan had that power. I think Jordan was the Red Ranger now that I think about it. But uh, certain names were just like the cool names growing up. So you had you had a cool name. Did it did it benefit you in life? Do you think? Do you think people said yes to you because they felt power, you know, because of it? What was it like? I'm jealous because my name's Cody. My name's silly. You know, my name is like it, it. It doesn't have that same coolness to it. Yeah, but you got the. Uh, it's like the. Oh, I'm so bad at English. What is an alliteration? The yes, K K yes. sound. The Cody Clark. I love the alliteration. It's great. I love I love that, though. I think that's pretty cool. All right. All right. I'll take that. Definitely alliteration growing up. That was something that I had pride in because it feels like you're already established before you even start. You know, it feels like, oh, you're meant to do something because you, you have the same initials. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like the Stan Lee superhero. Like all of, all of his characters were like alliterations, like Peter Parker, Bruce Banner, Sue Storm. Like they're all you know, alliterations. It's great. Exactly. He would have loved me. I think so. We would have gotten along perfectly well. You know, <laughs> he it, he would have kicked Kevin Smith to the curb and he w- I would have been his his best buddy, you know? Yeah. No, I Strummer feels very similar to Clerks in a lot of ways, so I think yeah, if you if you'd been if you'd made that in the 90s, you would have been in with like the comic book crowd and all that. It's funny because I I have no natural pull to any of that stuff. I try sometimes. You know, there's certain comic books I like, but I find that they're not the comic books that a lot of the comic book guys like. Are you are you big into comics or no? Huge, yeah, yeah. I really love comics. See, I I'll bring up comics that I like, and like it'll just be like crickets, or they'll just be like, yeah, but that's kind of like junky or whatever. Like I like. Uh, are you familiar with Danger Girl? Yes, yes. I think I've read like a couple issues, but that's it. Okay, the first run of Danger Girl, the the art in the in those initial Danger Girls is is fantastic by the way. I forget the name of the guy who does it, but he's he's just I'm so I'm so particular about art when it comes to comic books. Like I like um, you know, Carl Barks. I like the old Donald Duck stuff, the very mm-hmm. beautiful stuff in that regard. I like Tintin. I like I like stuff where I can key into the art. 
Whereas like a lot of the the superhero stuff, it's more about story and like, I'm not talking about like the classic, beautiful superhero comics. I'm talking about like the modern stuff. I just cannot pick up like a book that comes out on the shelves today and connect with the art. I'm just, I just have too much bias towards it. It's, it's just not a good scene. So what, what, what do you like as far as comic books? So just before we go, what, what, what are your, what are your favorites? Uh, so I love, I'm, I see, I'm huge into this. I like it all, but I'm huge into superhero stuff. So like Superman's my favorite. Batman, Wonder Woman, all all the pop, any popular superhero, I like them. I like them up, but particularly Superman. If I can go with like a weird kind of a little slightly more obscure, it's not that obscure, but like Punk Rock Jesus by Sean Murphy was a great, I think that's a graphic novel that came out last 10 years or so. That's a Vertigo comic that I really like. I love, um, what's it called? Anything that like uh, Grant Morrison touches, uh, that's, he's a, or they're a great writer. I love that. Gee, you know, we could have a whole nother episode just talking about comics. It feels like <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to have to make sure I pick up, uh, that comic you meant comic. You mentioned the, was it punk rock Jesus punk rock Jesus? Yeah. It's a really interesting sci-fi. If I, if I put this episode up, they're all going to shoot up in price and I won't be able to get my hands on it. I got to <laughs> like, I got to buy a couple before I edit the episode and, and put it out. That's why I like that these aren't live and I'm not like live streaming these episodes. Cause like if I get a nice, you know, tip, a nice piece of information like that, I can act upon it. Mm-hmm. I can secure a copy for myself before they start, you know, being like a thousand dollars on eBay and I can't get my hands on them. So I, th- I thank you for the recommendation. All right. So we're, you know, Ethan's, Ethan's sitting there twiddling his thumbs, bored out of his mind. Yeah. He wants to get on the horn. We're going to bring him on soon. Thank you, Jordan. This was a wonderful episode and uh, hopefully you'll come back in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening. Again, the best way to support the show, killthelinefilms.com. $2 per month. It supports the show. It supports the studio. Thank you. See you soon.